Why is it so hard these days to have new wind projects implemented in Norway? Well, it's because companies and policymakers who implemented such projects in the past were seemingly more concerned with getting their projects over the finishing line than to take needs of the local communities and society at large sufficiently into consideration. A transition that accelerates wanted change, but also takes into account the needs of minorities and vulnerable groups, and thereby is fair, equitable, and inclusive, is called a just transition. And today we talk about what that means and how we can reach just transitions, which will then again help to accelerate, for example, the energy transition. As a guest, I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Kirsten Jenkins from Edinburgh University today. We recorded this episode at the Beyond Normal, Beyond Crisis conference organized by Antonio here in Trondheim in September 23. Kirsten published in 2016 a seminal paper on energy justice, and we also touch upon that paper in this episode. That paper was already cited over 1,400 times, according to Google Scholar. I'm your host, Julius Wesche, and this is episode 59 of the Antonio Energy Tradition podcast. Let's go. The example of electric vehicles, and again, seen as a really normatively good thing to be doing, the right thing to be doing, the cleaner thing to be doing. But unless we do it properly, it can either create or reinforce previous injustices. Welcome to the Engine Energy Transition podcast today with an episode about just transitions why and how, and I'm obviously not alone. I'm uh, here with a senior lecturer in energy, environment and society at Edinburgh University, and she's Scottish. And we are actually in one of the meeting rooms uh, in Dix in Trondheim, where right now the Beyond Crisis 23 conference is taking place. And here she gave a keynote. So welcome to the podcast, Kirsten Jenkins. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. How's it to be? Is, is it your first time in, in Norway, Trondheim? Uh, first time in Trondheim, not my first time in Norway. No, if I could live in any other country other than Scotland, it would be here. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I had some friends actually going to Scotland from Norway and they said, oh, it's actually not that different. Is, no. Do you share that like the other way around? Yeah, I guess it's like a miniature version. Um, I think, yeah, no, smaller mountains, smaller lochs, smaller yeah. seas, but basically yeah. the same type it's of landscape. Same. Yeah. Same amount of bog and same amount of... Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you get midges in Norway, what but... Is that? Like gnats, like small biting insects. Oh, we got them. Okay, yeah. well then we're the same. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, Kirsten, you, you gave a, you gave a talk or you gave a keynote today at the conference here about about just transitions, and so far that's a that's a topic that we haven't really covered in the Internet Energy Transition podcast because very often we have people that work with technology, with energy, uh, utility companies, startups, policymakers, that kind. Um, but I'm really happy to have you on board because to also give a bit more of an academic touch um, to maybe the podcast because we have some people from Antenu here, but this is a topic of just transitions, which I think is very important and key and also in the context of Norway because we have had experiences with Sami people where they, the reindeer herders suddenly had um, wind turbines put up in, on their, uh, in, the, in the places where normally the reindeers would, would you know, um, be on pastures and, and get, the, uh, get the feed from. So, so I'm happy to talk about that. When, let's, let's maybe start with, you know, drawing the big picture. Can you give us an idea? What, what is a just transition when we think about the energy transition and, and why we, would we need that? Yeah, it is a huge question. Is this a four hour long podcast? No, we are like... <laughs> <laughs> no it's, a, it's a really, really important question, I think. And there's a, a numerous different ways of coming towards an answer to that. 
primarily a just transition would be one that's framed as a fair, equal, just, uh, successful, socially, socially acceptable transition. One where the future of whatever we're doing, moving towards renewables in this context, is a better outcome than the system that we have now and happens through a process that protects people, uh, that protects environments and pr protects, you know, histories, the various different things that we value in social space to make sure that we get to a better outcome. That would be the very broad way of framing it. Within it, there are lots and lots of contradictions and contestations and definitional problems. So if you look at the history of the Just Transitions concept in particular, it stems from the labour movement, uh, largely from the United States, where in the context of transition in industry, there was a growing awareness that it really affected workers, it affected local communities, it disadvantaged particular sections of society, black and ethnic minority populations, for example, or those with lower educational backgrounds. And so it grew out of organizations like the International Labour Organization um, <clears throat> to say that when change happens, we need to make sure that people are on board and that vulnerabilities are appreciated and, uh, you know, actioned. We make sure they don't exist anymore. I say it gets more complicated than that because then you have, you know, working as an academic literatures that almost say the same thing, but in a slightly different way. And the primary example of that is the energy justice literature. The energy justice literature doesn't have the same political and activist and organizational background. It stems more from the academic tradition where we're using language of distributional justice, procedural justice, justice as recognition, uh, which I can expand, um, where that is a framework for considering what's happening at the moment or what has happened in the past, but also for asking questions about what ought to be in the future. Who ought to be recognised? Are we trying to get rid of fuel poverty, for example? Are we trying to consider workers in oil and gas contexts that are losing their jobs? Are we trying to consider disabled populations who can't use the new technologies? And then moving past that, you know, what are the processes in place to protect those groups? What processes ought we to have um, in order to make those different futures happen? So a complex space, but always united about, you know, that better world uh, and recognizing people, places and environments within it. Yeah, you just mentioned these points of distributional justice, recognition in it, procedural justice, cosmopolitan justice, not yet, but that's mm. something that we're going to kind of like dissect in maybe in a couple of minutes. Yeah. Um, but maybe before we do that, you just mentioned a couple of experiences, uh, like real life examples, as put like that, and I would like for, for you to expand maybe on that a little bit. You just mentioned oil and gas workers. You just mentioned, I think, miners. Can you give us an idea, like, what are the what are the challenges that these people or these parts of society would would, would encounter um, if you know if just transitions or just energy transitions are not done in a, in a good way, or if we if we don't think about these concepts in in, in a way that, that they also shape our policy decisions, for example. Mm. The first thing I'll say is that these issues of injustice occur across an entire energy system. So they occur from the point of resource extraction, in the case of uranium or cobalt or lithium, as they go into electric vehicle batteries, for example. And they also occur all the way through to the actual use of that energy in someone's home. Um, 
be that person, you know, just your average household member or a child or an older person in a care home, whatever they are. Um, and all of the stages in between are points where the human and environmental world have negative implications associated uh, with energy systems production. So I can give examples all the way along. I think the first one, if you're thinking about that really beginning of where we get our energy from, that's particularly important at the moment is around cobalt mining, cobalt mining, <laughs> um, which in the context of the rollout of electric vehicles is becoming more and more necessary. It's one of the critical uh, rare earth minerals that goes into the batteries that we're pinning our energy futures on. But a lot of that happens in context of very poor environmental regulation, very poor social regulation, um, and very, very poor levels of pay and welfare for communities. And actually, if you look this up, I think Forbes and other big organizations have run really critical articles on this. You can see really disturbing pictures of what are called artisanal miners, but are effectively just people with shovels and pickaxes getting this out the ground to go into the electric vehicle in a privileged context like Norway and the UK. Um, and we have to consider, therefore, the decisions that we're making in these privileged contexts about our transitions, but also the downstream um, of what's going into them. If you were to go fast forward, um, you might think about refineries or you know sites of reproduction or extraction in a different way, and you have oil and gas as you mentioned. So oil and gas at the moment is in a really interesting political space. Uh, some countries really trying to move away from the others, feeling very uncertain about the futures of whether they can economically afford to do that. But we still know that long-term oil and gas probably isn't as much of the picture, at least, as it is now. Um, and depending on how ambitious you want to be, it might not be there at all. But there are well, there are a lot of organizations like the IEA or, or Guterres, yeah. for example, says every more investment yeah. is maybe not the right idea. And it's also we have more infrastructure that we actually need yeah. when it comes to the two degree goal. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah, just a second. That. I'm trying I'm trying to temper my my opinion that we should just get rid of it. Um, <laughs> but maybe maybe but it's also and maybe but that that also like. From an, from an environmental point of view, that might be the right thing to do. But then you just mentioned oil workers, you know. Exactly. It's it's easier to, to make these claims than it is to implement them. And then yeah. you have to deal with the repercussions somehow. And also oil workers are people that need, I don't know, need to be taken care of. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. And that's exactly why it's a just transitions question and why this language is becoming... I think more used in that space in particular. So huge swathes um, of geographical areas where the population is heavily embedded uh, in the oil and gas sector, communities where there are secondary and tertiary levels of income from the oil and gas sector, um, and also really strong cultural identities. And I don't think we can forget that. So being from the northeast of Scotland myself, we have an entire coastline where much of the profitability and much of the social identity is around a contribution to an oil and gas economy. Um, and where people, we call them oilies, um, where people have worked in that industry for a couple of decades or a couple of families even, it is part of cultural practice. And so the move away from oil and gas from an environmental perspective or a political perspective 
is seen as one of those objective goods. It makes sense. It's rational. We have alternatives that we should be using, but actually when you think about the communities of place and practice involved, um, it can be quite problematic. And we have seen in the past transitions where attention hasn't been given to that topic. So the move away from oil and gas in, uh, sorry, coal in the UK previously happened almost overnight. Um, it was in Margaret Thatcher's 1980s political movement that there was a decide, decision that for climate reasons, um, largely, they should move away from coal. And, but people weren't given alternatives. They lost their jobs within 28, 48 hours in some of the collieries. And still today, you can see the economic implications of that and the social, um, you know, the various different health indicators and education indicators and financial indicators. There are still huge swathes of deprivation caused by that choice. That's why she was also called the, the Iron Hand. Yeah, Iron Hand. Maybe is that one of the decisions that she made yeah. that maybe led to that yeah, yeah, yeah. nickname, if you will? It, yeah, one of them, a really interesting person. She, you know, moved along climate movements and environmentalism at the same time as making some very strong iron-fisted choices uh, that were widely criticized and lots and lots of campaigns against even at the time. So really the just transition is a call not to make those same mistakes again, to bring societies with the change, uh, to help reinvest in economies um, and local communities. And then if you go to the end of the cycle, just as another um, quick example, then you have the users that are trying to use these new systems. I gave in my presentation this morning for the conference the example of electric vehicles. And again, seen as a really normatively good thing to be doing, the right thing to be doing, the cleaner thing to be doing. But unless we do it properly, it can either create or reinforce uh, previous injustices. And one of the, you know, The simplest examples of that is that a lot of the parking lots have cars sat so close together that a wheelchair user can't get down the middle of them. And a lot of the charging infrastructure is put behind barriers or fences um, or on a slight increase, which means, again, that people in wheelchairs can't actually plug in their vehicles. And it's so simple. It's part of a just transition to think about what technologies are being used by who to recognize those different social groups so that good decisions are made and people aren't left out. And you gave another example of, was it like a, I don't know, was it kind of an iPad thing is for a smart meter? Um, you have to use a smart meter and that can also have challenges to particular parts of society. Yeah, so that's the picture I put up this morning was an in-home display or an IHD, uh, which is the main interface that a domestic user would have with their smart meter. It's the thing that shows you how much it's costing and whether you're using a lot or a little or when it might cost less to use your electricity. And the way that that's been rolled out in a number of countries has been, to be honest, just quite stupid. <laughs> so I criticized that in two ways. The first was that a lot of these smart meters and in-home displays were originally installed in people's homes for one energy company only. So if you wanted to make the most of flexible tariffs, changing suppliers to get better rates, etc., they would have to go into your house, rip out your smart meter and put in an entirely new one which is just bonkers. It's a huge amount of e-waste, which creates its own system of injustice. And then the other thing is they were designed in such a way that, again, they made some groups comparatively more vulnerable. So if you had English as a second language, it didn't have any other language functionality. It would talk to you in English only. Um, and if you were visually impaired, then the whole interface doesn't 
doesn't work because you're just supposed to look at the screen. And actually that's something that occurred in my own family with my grandmother who was registered blind, who could just see a glowing thing in the corner that was trying to tell her to make better choices, but she didn't understand what it was. She thought it was an alien um, and it didn't have any talking functionality to say, turn this off or, you know, whatever. Say yes if you want to turn it off. Exactly, it's yeah. It just... Voice, well... Yeah, and you might say, okay, well, registered blind people or people for whom English or, you know, whatever is the second language are a small minority. And yet, that's that's ridiculous. They, they still need recognition. They need justice by design, as I called it, where we're making sure that the transition technologies we're putting in meet all the needs that they're supposed to maybe two points first point is like that there's a lot of publications also in the sustainability transitions literature where we where it was shown that you know we always go through cycles of change that means this these challenges to make these cycles of change um yeah make them just is probably not something that we only kind of figured out in the last five years mm -hmm. but for example in in Nordrhein-Westfalen in western Germany there was Similar as in the UK, a lot of mining activity, and then they, that was phased out. Mm -hmm. And um, now, 10 years later, in Eastern Germany, similar processes are starting. So it's not that this this hasn't been on the agenda, and it's not that there's no uh, no experience around it at all. So, so can you maybe give us an idea of like how long has this been taken up proactively in 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 the academic literature? Do you see some kind of a rise in the last five to 10 years? I don't know. Give us an idea, like, where are we coming from in the academic literature when it comes to just transitions? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And again, a debated one. Um, one of the editors of the journal Energy Policy, which is one of the biggest in this space, former editors actually, had worked for BP and Shell since I think the 1960s or 70s. Um, and I remember writing an article for the Energy Policy Journal in which I said, energy justice and trust transitions has only been around for 10 years. And he said, no, it goes back decades. Um, these discussions of justice, fairness and equality are, albeit more implicitly, but you know, built into things like the Brundtland and sustainable development literatures. They're built into Brenda Boardman's fuel poverty work in the 1990s. They're built into the whole climate movement as it goes back for decades. So you could say that the awareness of that, the need for this um, attention to justice and wider questions of social change has been here disturbingly for 50, 60 years and we're not getting much further. But if you wanted to take a more measured look at the literature and say, when was the term explicitly used? Then it's, you know, 2010 onwards and we are seeing an exponential growth in this area which is exciting. It's something that's galvanizing a lot of interest from the academic community. It's at a conference like this today, something that you can see ripple all the way throughout the presentations as a recurring theme. And that just shows that we are making progress towards this being something that is publicly discussed, acknowledged, and therefore acted on. So I'm very positive about it in that regard. Mm. You use this word galvanizing right now, and you also use it today in your keynote, and I still don't know what it actually means. Could you, for the naive, non-educated people <laughs> like me, can you give us an idea of what galvanizing actually means? Oh, God. Well, if you're a chemist or a scientist, like natural scientist, please don't quote me on this. Um, but the way that I mean it from a social science perspective is to gain further support for, you know, use as a mobilizing opportunity um, for an alternative way of thinking, an alternative way of doing. So by galvanizing support, we're bringing more and more people into the fold of action for a just transition. All right, all right. That, okay, that, 
gives a bit of more meaning. That's good. In 2016, you you um, you published a conceptual review about just transitions. I think just transitions or just energy, energy. transition. Yeah, energy justice. Energy justice. Yeah, and um, and in that paper um, you had these different types of principles that you mentioned already uh, right at the beginning of the podcast episode and I would love to deep uh, dive a bit into them with you so it's it's four principles you call them tenants and now we said maybe principles is a way that also people like me can understand yeah um, so can you give us you know what give us a walk through there like okay what are what are the different principles um, and then you also talked about like um, how to yeah, how to like yeah, evaluative and normative. So give us an idea and maybe introduce that that concept or that framework to to the audience. That will be splendid. Okay, take notes, everyone. So <laughs> the first first one is distributional justice, and the distributional justice principle um, is concerned primarily with what the source of injustice is. So that might be things like the unequal siting of a piece of infrastructure. Give an example of a nuclear power station. A nuclear power station has to be by a large source of water in order to cool its reactors. So it has to go in a particular place. Wind turbines are another one that comes up in this um, example quite a lot to say that wind turbines should only really be put where the wind blows. So, you know, there's an unequal impact on society. We talked about cobalt earlier um, in the podcast, you know, mining and resource use. All of these energy take technologies take place in our place. Um, and distributional justice is saying, what is the problem associated with that and where is it happening? What I will say though, and we always mention this about distributional justice, is not everything can be inherently fair. Exactly for the reason that some resources exist in places where others don't, that technology has to go in places where it has to go <laughs> in order to harness those. Um, so distributional justice raises the what question, but it also acknowledges that what isn't the only solution. And that's where you get to the second principle. You can change the order if you want and shake things up, but I would always go to justice's recognition next. And that moves you from what is the injustice, the particular concern, to who is it affecting. And in the examples I gave earlier, that includes miners, includes oil and gas workers, um, it includes users that have particular vulnerabilities, but it also begs us to ask the question, who is responsible for that? It's often a really, really difficult conversation to have, and it's a really slippery one, and people diffuse responsibility, ignore it, pass it on, etc. But it's begging us to ask the question, if something is wrong and it's affecting a particular group, who fixes it? So, so the who is not re, uh, is not relating to who's on whom implications will occur, mm. but is whose kind of responsibility that the injustice just emerges. Yeah, both of those things. Both of those things. Both of those things. Yeah, they have to go side by side. Um, but the first bit, I think, is easier to discuss. It's easier to make claims of injustice, to identify injustice, um, to talk about legacies, histories, and future injustices than it is to actually say. And that's this person's fault, or this organization's fault, or this politi political system's yeah. fault. And the problem is also that the fault, whatever the fault is, is probably also very often can be found in people who have who are in power. Yeah. And uh, speaking truth to power is mm. is a challenging thing sometimes, especially when people with power have a lot of soft power as well, like funding a lot of other projects or have a good mm. a good 
how do you say, like position in society. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I understand that it's sometimes maybe hard to kind of point fingers and yeah. say, actually, it's your fault. Exactly. Mm. And there's even questions of, you know, people in power, we assume in this part of the world that that's in the diplomatic system or a democratic system. Um, we yeah, can vote them out, but there's many countries where that's... Exactly. There, there are authoritarian contexts and that raises totally different questions of how justice is achieved in that setting. So those questions of responsibility absolutely have to be there. And then the third principle, as we'll call it, is procedural justice. And procedural justice is saying, okay, once you've identified what and who um, are of concern, then you say, okay, how do we actually do anything about it? Um, or what processes are failing us at the moment? I give a really good example of this. Consultation seemed to be a really positive thing. Um, seem to be something that's enshrined in lots of policy goals and outcomes and that will help us meet this green transition. But it is possible to do consultation in a totally useless way. This came up in the context of nuclear power when I was doing my PhD research um, and they ran consultations at, I think it was about one o'clock on a Monday um, in, in, a, in a town hall, in a local community, um, when the vast majority of people are working or at school um, or otherwise unavailable for other, you know, pragmatic everyday reasons. So the pool of who able was who was able to attend that consultation, although they had done it, was incredibly small. Um, and when you get to that consultation, you're given three minutes to stand up on stage if you have something to say, um, and you say it, and there's no measurable outcome, evaluation, monitoring, nothing. You, you've just had your piece said, um, and that's not a way of doing, you know positive community engagement. So procedural justice pushing us towards alternative structures of decision-making or full procedure for engaging people in determining energy futures. And then the cosmopolitan piece blows some people's mind. Um, I always put it in a slightly different box, but the cosmopolitan piece is saying that we should ask that question conscious that we are part of a global system of humanity, a global system of rights. Um, and where there's responsibility, not just within our own geographical borders or communities, but actually to these wider systems um, of humanity and to environmental um, impacts. So getting us to think beyond at a bigger picture scale. Well, I wanted to ask you, what are the implications if procedural justice or like if the processes that are implemented are not necessarily just the, mm -hmm. the, the procedures, if they're not just. And the first idea that came to mind was that in Norway there was quite a quite a pickup, if you would say, of onshore wind uh, deployment, mm -hmm. and now we're almost at zero again, um, probably or partly because, um, yeah, these procedures were like people were not invited, didn't feel included, and then a lot of yeah negative contestation um, emerged around that topic, which then brought us to kind of, kind of zero deployment right now. Um, could you, is that something that sounds familiar from other national contexts as well? Would you put these kind of processes in that box of procedural justice? Yeah, I think I absolutely would. Before I say anything else, I just want to caveat that we often say more participation and procedural justice, again, is an inherently good thing. Mm -hmm. I fully recognize that there are tensions and trade-offs between rapid progress towards outcomes and fully engaging everyone. Um, and deliberative processes. Sometimes you do have to move quickly. Sometimes you can't talk to every stakeholder. Um, 
challenge me to give an example of that, if you will. But <laughs> um, just to say that, you know, this this notion of participation is quite a tricky one to pin down anyway. And we're also in the position of saying, you know, everyone should participate. In reality, not everyone cares. Um, that sounds really brutal to say it like that. But in reality, not everyone understands the nature of these challenges. They might not be bought into the need for climate change action. Um, they might not have space when they're dealing with their own day-to-day -day lives and other vulnerabilities and bills to pay in the time of climate crisis and energy crisis and financial crisis. I'm from the UK, it's just not going very well. Um, so <laughs> participation is something that we can really, you know, play around with the, the idea that that's a good, necessary and practical outcome. All that said, if we don't do things well, and there are so many examples of where we don't, there are real measurable outcomes. As you say, the contestation increases, the social acceptance decreases, you get the limited diffusion of technologies like wind, which do have a really important part to play in the energy mix and which open up so many opportunities, primarily because people you know, start to put up their borders to having them um, in their geographical area or in their communities. And that, if you think about it really, really long term, then has knock-ons elsewhere. We're going to be left in the context of oil and gas phase out by necessity, where there perhaps aren't going to be those renewable alternatives in places. And we're going to go through another phase of energy price vulnerability um, or volatility because our systems haven't been able to keep pace with the change. Um, so it's, yeah, participation is tricky. It can be questioned as just, let's talk to more people and it will be inherently better. Um, but nonetheless, it is needed um, in order to make sure that what is changing is accepted to some degree. It's funny when you when you just mentioned that is um, then now we are, I feel we are kind of in, in, in the next hype of carbon capture and storage in, in, in Europe or parts of Europe. And in Germany, they had 10, 12 years ago, there had been four first sites of where it was like kind of tried out or they were thinking about implementing carbon capture technology there. And in three of them, local communities were in like, in all four of them, all local communities were substantially involved. And in three of them, there were directly a lot of contestation and they really didn't want it. And one of them was like, yeah, well, it might create some jobs and we think it's important for the energy system. We just do it. So there, it's kind of interesting to what you just said, like it's not necessarily helpful to just do more consultation or whatever it is. There's so much local context in every community and every community is different. So it's like really hard to say, we have to do more of this or that, or maybe not. So um, just to add to the complexity of, of the whole of the whole yeah. game. I think you're right though, context is absolutely paramount. I mean, you could try one solution, renewable energy in the north of Scotland along the lines of wind turbines, and that would be fairly successful. You do the same thing right now in Mexico in some of the um, communities where they've had huge developments of commercial wind and it feels extractive and people get really low land rents or no measurable impact and it's not acceptable. It just it, it makes decisions harder when you say that they always have to be local and contextual and reasonable, but it but it is true. You, you can't get away from that. Um, everyone will have a different opinion. <laughs> um, and it comes down, as you've just said, sometimes to the history of the place, whether they've had former energy resource production, extraction, whatever, um, and they've lost that. And therefore there's an economic black hole in that community that could be filled with that alternative technology. 
of course they're going to be more accepting than someone else somewhere that's perhaps more prosperous. Um, but really the thing here is to say context is important and choice is important. Um, <clears throat> we all have to be engaged in making those decisions mm -hmm. where practically possible. Yeah. You mentioned this trade-off that I feel that is everywhere about this topic or in the last 20, 30 minutes that we talked about it. And, and that's this trade-off of like, on the one hand, we have climate change and we have to accelerate the deployment of low carbon technology, if you will, or, you know, also not just not, not just implementing it, but also, you know, I feel like we should talk way more about energy efficiency yeah. and, you know, demand reduction. So, but let's say we have the technology part of it and we, or, and we have to accelerate these processes maybe. And on the other hand, we want to do them in a, in a just way. And you just mentioned doing things in a just way also includes to do, you know, having all these people on board, um, doing a lot of interaction with them on the ground, understanding the context in which they live in it does take time. So on the one hand, we want to be fast. And on the, one, the other hand, we want to be just. And sometimes I feel that's, an, that's a trade-off. Yeah. And I was wondering, like, do you also, do you agree that that's a trade-off? And how can we go about this? A hundred percent a trade-off. Um, you're asking me this question too early because there's a session on this this afternoon. And maybe if I'd gone to that session, I'd have uh, better answers. But as my you know, initial response, it absolutely exists. You have the, do you push for low carbon and, you know, make society move even if it doesn't want to and then apologize after? Or do you do what society wants and take a more winding path perhaps and then risk missing some of your climate targets? That is something. That Which increases then other injustices down the road. Again, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's absolutely something that's playing out in the UK at the moment where we had these ambitious net zero targets. Um, and a lot of them have just been rolled back. And the reason that the government is giving for that is because the consumer is having to pay too much for the transition to happen. And it's putting far, far more negative implications on consumers and households than it ultimately should. I think that's absolute rubbish because long-term it will cost more. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, going beyond my political opinions, there's something here to be said about balancing both of those things the ambition and the reality through consistency. I think consistency is absolutely key here. If we're saying that, okay, it's not going to be easy, there are going to be bumps along the road, but we are trying to do the phase out of oil and gas by say 2050, or we're trying to reach net zero targets by 2050, you stick to that because industry is coming with you, energy companies are coming with you, consumers are coming with you. What is more damaging is what the UK is doing at the moment, which is flip-flopping between climate ambition and consumer protection as they articulate it. And that just leads to a market of uncertainty where I genuinely think if we look back in 10 years time, we'll be paying more than we ever had to because those targets were rolled back. It's just madness. Um, and then if you, you think about it at a more granular level than that, it's to say, okay, some things are more uncertain than others. The role of um, heat pumps within homes as a technology, an alternative source of heating, is much, much more controversial, for example, than actually insulating the house. Everyone's comfortable with insulation. It's not always that hard to put insulation in your roof. It's a proven technology. We have external wall cladding. We have internal wall cladding. We have higher rated appliances, etc. So let's go with the things that are still technologically certain and then those that are in a position of privilege to test the things that are less certain should do so for the benefit of greater society. Um, but again, the UK is just 
removed its energy efficiency task for us, which is brilliant. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. It's kind of interesting that you actually bring up uh, heat pumps as in contested technology, because if you live in Norway, I don't know, I don't know, 80% of houses have heat pumps yeah, yeah. and it's like working. Yeah. And But I'm obviously aware that prices, electricity prices in Norway are lower than, for example, in the UK. And there's this gentleman, um, Jan Rosenau, and he 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 made him himself kind of a job of like finding academic research papers mm -hmm. that discuss the use of hydrogen in heating. Mm -hmm. And I think he has now 44 academic papers together that say it's financially just it doesn't make sense. So yeah. what 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 other solution is there going to be than heat pumps? But maybe let's not get too deep into the heat <laughs> pumps versus hydrogen uh, uh, the discussion here. Maybe maybe to the end of, of the of the episode, Kirsten, um, you, you mentioned that a little bit, but like what, what would be your advice to businesses, to municipalities, to policymakers on uh, what to have in mind when deploying technology at scale, when to doing, you know, how to, in, how to implement distributional justice, rec to recognize the right people, implementing the right procedures. Um, mm. What are your like, I don't know, two, three, points that you think everyone should have in mind who works in industry, in municipalities, and in policymaking? Yeah, huge question. <laughs> um, I would say... How about a huge answer? Yeah, yeah, why not? Uh, I'll do a mic drop. I'll just drop four okay. and then, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Change the world. Um, okay, the first one is I would put it around the theme of justice by design, and I talked about this. It is earlier in the session, by the way, not in the podcast. Um, but justice by design effectively means that if you anticipate justice early enough in an industry choice or technology design, you can make sure that it, the technology or the outcome does what it needs to do. Again, giving an example of that, if only the people putting in electric vehicle charging points had begun to consider that some people don't have the same access requirements as others, then the entire you know, parking lot would be a slightly, slightly different shape. You might lose one or two spaces, but you help people get access to what they need. So justice by design is thinking in advance of what is not only the economic outcome of this choice, um, but what is the social and environmental impact of that choice? You can do that through social license to operate, social impact assessments alongside environmental impact assessments, etc. We will help you build a tool if you want to come and talk to me afterwards. <laughs> the other thing would be around really being explicit about defining goals, targets, visions, and outcomes. So it's really easy to use the language of, you know, if you learn one thing from this podcast, just transitions or net zero or low carbon. Um, but people bandy that language around without actually saying who they mean that for, you know, is that of a place? Is it of a community? Is it of an international system? What What is your true articulation of that? Does it mean more energy affordability, more inclusion, more participation? You know, really get down to the granular detail of specifying what it is that you are trying to achieve. And that will help people see whether they do or do not match with that. Um, and then we have productive conversations about where there are disagreements. Third thing uh, would be keep things measurable. Um, again, I've talked about this uh, in various areas of my work, but where there are those targets and they sound so good, 
how are you going to achieve them? What are the stepping stones that you put in place? Um, is it that you consult once, consult twice, consult three times? Is it that you sign up to a particular agreement within five years and then make a economic investment within 10, whatever it is, there needs to be a man manageable and measurable step-by-step -step process of achieving those targets. And you need to think about evaluating what it is that you're trying to achieve. And then the fourth one, as a plea, both to podcast listeners and also to the UK government right now, is to keep things consistent, as I mentioned. Mm. Um, if that target is there and it's bringing with it money, interest, communities, people and places and things, keep it consistent so that we can make a change happen rather than set ambitious targets, freak out and fail to get them. <laughs> Which doesn't really help the process, does it? No. Yeah. <laughs> Dear Kristen, Thank you for joining me for this podcast today. Where would people reach out to you? Where do you want to be called? Is it Twitter? Is it LinkedIn? Is it your webpage? Where can people reach out to you? If yeah. they think that this is important, then if they maybe want to have you on a panel or for advice or whatever it is. Yeah, my only limit is not Instagram. No, you can find me on Twitter at jenk2021. This is J-E-N-K-2021. Or you can email me if you look up uh, University of Edinburgh. Uh, you'll find my profile, Kirsten Jenkins, and again, LinkedIn, Kirsten Jenkins. So multimedia, just not Instagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll put it all into the show notes. So thanks for joining today. Uh, have a good conference today and um, yeah, good travels back to Edinburgh, obviously. Thanks. Thank you very much.